Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number 23, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode that you're listening to, we want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Also, as a guide for you, episode one through eight provide important foundational information. Starting with episode nine, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future. With the inner IQ, which stands for inner integral qualities, being introduced in episode 12. And we really recommend that you listen to all the inner IQ episodes if you can, because the inner IQ provides parents with an essential framework they can use to help understand and guide their children's healthy development. Now, in our last episode, we had a great conversation with author and family screen time specialist, Gene Rogers, director of the Children's Screen Time Action Network. And in that episode, we discussed four trade-offs that today's children and families are being compelled to make due to the escalating impact of tech, media, and consumerism. Today, we're joined by Julie Herzog director of the PACER National Bullying Prevention Center. Julie is a nationally recognized leader in the area of bullying prevention, and she helped create major initiatives such as PACER's National Bullying Prevention Month. She's been featured on CNN, NBC Nightly News, People, The Huffington Post, and many other major media outlets. Julie will be with us for the next two episodes as we talk about what parents and families need to know about bullying, including cyberbullying and what they can do to help protect their children against bullying. Julie, we're so happy to have you with us today. I'm happy to be here. So, Julie, I thought that our listeners would really be interested, first of all, how you got involved with this. I mean, PACER is such a wonderful organization, and you've been involved with it for a number of years. Could you just share a little bit of your own personal story as to how you became involved with PACER and what your job is at PACER? Absolutely happy to do that. I will be celebrating my 20th anniversary here at Pacer Center in this January. And our organization, Pacer is an acronym for Parents Advocacy Coalition for Educational Rights. And so we promote hiring parents of children with disabilities. And when my son David was three, he was born with Down syndrome and some other significant medical aspects. I saw at that time in a newspaper that said parents of children with disabilities encouraged to apply. And I thought how amazing that an organization values what parents are bringing to the table as far as just life experience. And about a year after I was at PACER, and again, we're an advocacy organization for kids with disabilities, primarily with special education. And when David was heading into kindergarten, I started thinking about his experience and what it would be like for him in school because he was nonverbal, you know, obviously had Down syndrome, was nonverbal, was small. He had a pacemaker. He had a feeding tube. So he had some real obvious vulnerabilities. 
And he had also had a lot of challenges the first three years and literally fought for his life. And I thought, I can't watch this young man go to school and be hurt or harmed or teased in any way, shape, or form. It would have absolutely broke my heart to have that happen. And I thought, what can we do for David and really any kids who are vulnerable to teasing or bullying? And so he was really my personal inspiration for starting my work in the bullying prevention realm and thinking about what is it that we can teach both his peers as well as us as adults and educators, like what can we do to address this topic of bullying? And so I credit David and any kids who are vulnerable for really providing my passion all these years at looking at what we can do to address and prevent bullying in our society. And on your side, I think you mentioned that um, children with disabilities are more prone to be bullied. Is that the case? And, and also, do you think you could just fill our listeners in a little bit about the most important statistics that you have in terms of bullying? How frequent is it? I think that parents are obviously very concerned about this, whether their child is being bullied or has the potential to being bullied, etc. But can you just give us a few statistics if you have them with regard to what your organization has found about bullying in general? It's an interesting question because the landscape of bullying with the data out there currently shows that one out of every five kids report being bullied, but it would be my perception that it's actually underreported and that within certain populations, such as students with disabilities or those who I identify or perceived as LGBT students, they're oftentimes with race and religion, certain populations are at a much higher percentage of being bullied. And I think students with disabilities, the, the meta-analysis says that they're two to three times more likely. But even within the disability community, there's students identified with Tourette syndrome or ADHD or some of those what we call non-visible disabilities are bullied at a much higher rate as well. So again, there's certain populations that are very targeted with the behavior. Given, Julie, that you've watched what has been happening under the radar, the changes in the digital technology and social media for that 20-year window, which emerged really at the turn of the century and then has been escalating exponentially for the last 20 years. So along with that change in social media and digital technologies, could you recognize an accompanying change in bullying that occurred along with that? Yeah, again, I think that's a great question. And I'll share this as just kind of an anecdotal that when we first started looking at our mission statement and examining how we wanted to position our work, at the time, bullying was considered just this natural rite of childhood passage. So again, remember, I started doing this in the early 2000s, um, much before we were even talking about using technology to bully. But it was also that there was those adages in our culture that really rationalized and justified the bullying. Everything from boys will be boys, or this is a natural part of kids growing up, or it's an acceptable rite of childhood passage. And so at the time when we wrote our mission statement, we said we wanted to actively lead social change so that bullying was no longer considered an acceptable rite of childhood passage. And because of the work that's been done over the last decade or so, we actually changed that vision statement to reflect that I don't think there is that belief anymore that bullying is just a natural part of childhood. 
So we now say that we actively lead social change to prevent childhood bullying so that all youth feel safe and supported in their schools, community, and online. So a couple important changes there. We didn't used to talk about online behavior. And we've also, I think there's very much a recognition that knowledge of the impact that bullying has both to a child in the short term as well as in the long term. And I think that that is a significant change in our society. But with that, you know, you're asking about some of that anecdotal information. And just personally, I have a daughter who's 24 and I have a daughter who's 17. And the 24-year-old was right on the cusp of social media. And I can remember some of those stories of things that kids were doing to each other at that time because that generation was thrust into social media without any sort of training or education. And we were all learning as we went along as compared to my 17-year-old who knows that if they do something online and it's visible to see to everybody that there's going to be consequences where the, the kids who were growing up even less than 10 years ago didn't have those consequences. Have you found that there is a difference in bullying between boys and girls? I mean, does it look differently Is there a difference in frequency? I would say, again, maybe even 10 years ago, there was a very distinct pronounced difference between how girls bullied and how boys did. Again, the boys were much more physical. The girls were much more, had that much more covert behavior with things such as gossip and emotional manipulation. But with the advent of social media and technology, some of those gender differences have begun to merge a bit and Boys are being a little bit more manipulative online as well. And so there's been a slight shift in that where some of their behaviors are getting closer and closer. And part of that is too that kids know today that that physical piece that if teachers or parents see them actually pushing somebody around or doing something very overt, they know there's going to be consequences for that. So some of that physical bullying has just decreased. And that's, again, you know, what the boys were doing more often. So I feel like the boys are somehow finding other ways to bully as well. Mm. Is there a difference in ages? I mean, you know, what have you found out about age-wise you know, when bullying sort of begins online particularly? Have you found that there is some sort of point, uh, some age that bullying is now starting for children and a point where parents really need to be aware of? Is there any data on that at all? Definite difference in ages. And we're cautious about kids who are in that kindergarten, first grade age about calling it bullying because sometimes they're just not aware of their behaviors and how it's impacting. And part of bullying is about intent. But I would say that kids are bullying at a younger age or showing that behavior at a younger age. But predominantly, it does spike during those middle school years. And there's a couple of reasons for that, because with middle school comes a lot of autonomy, because oftentimes kids are moving from that classroom environment that's more controlled. And when they're getting in middle school, they're moving from class to class. So there's just new opportunities there for inappropriate behaviors, and kids are just testing out the norms. There's also just that stronger social piece that happens in middle school, too, where kids are are testing out their relationships, they're testing out their power with each other. And so that middle school, you definitely do see a spike there. So would you say that that's a place where parents really need to be particularly aware of and try to intervene or build 
whatever protections there are for their children in at those ages if they haven't done so already? Yeah, ideally, I think as you're going through your child's kind of school age years, there's things that you want to be looking at early on and early on having those conversations about what bullying is, also about what your expectations are, because we talk about not only the kids who are being bullied, but we we talk about the kids who are doing the bullying. We do a lot of education around those who are witnessing it too, because they can be such incredible advocates for that protection piece for others. And so through your child's school experience, you want to absolutely be introducing the topic about bullying and especially when you're providing your kids access to technology, because I think so often parents equate bullying with social media. They equate the online piece with just social media. But we know that kids, as soon as they have that opportunity to interact online with each other, that there's also that challenge of keeping their behavior appropriate. You know, everything from texting to gaming to group chats to instant messaging, anywhere where they're interacting with each other, and especially in groups. And that happens oftentimes with our kids now between ages 9 to 12. And so there's that early onset that you want to be looking at. And then with that, when your kids are moving into that middle school environment, there's new concerns that you want to be talking to them about too. And especially what happens in middle school is just the relationships that start to happen too. And it can be the girl on girl relationships, the boy on boy, but oftentimes a lot of bullying happens because of romantic relationships. Uh, Kids can be really harsh about that. Mm -hmm. And there's also just the group mentality there too with kids because it's so important to be part of a social network in middle school too. And so those are all things you want to be talking to your kids about. Julie, how have you um, seen any changes occur relative to the changes that have occurred in society? Because For the most part, there's a splitting, whether it's in the political parties or in other realms of society. Do you see that from the top down, that that kind of splitting and polarizing that's taking place has an impact on, let's say, high school kids and that they're picking up cues from what's going on in a societal frame of reference that sort of allow bullying to occur? Again, a great question. And I would respond to that by saying that really it's us adults that allow bullying to happen, to continue. And societally, if you look at how we, again, I'll go back to those expressions that we use to justify and rationalize bullying behavior. So everything from a generation ago with that, you know, saying boys be boys, oh, It's just teasing or sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. So we know that bullying behavior has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's been the way that we as a society have looked at it that has allowed it for so long. And I would say our kids are absolutely looking to us adults for their cues. And have we seen an uptick in recent years based on our current status as a society? You know, I don't know if I can necessarily equate any specific changes to that that we hear, but I would say from, you know, where we know that there's administration who are actively talking about bullying and actively also promoting cultures that are inclusive, that are accepting, that are kinder, 
that you see a definite reduction in bullying. I think oftentimes there's a tendency that if we don't talk about it, we won't be a problem. Mm -hmm. But bullying is going to exist just because it's about behavior and kids are testing behavior. That's what they do at that age because so much of acceptance into society is finding where you fit in and where you don't fit in. And so by actively talking about these things and discussing them, the educational piece is one of the most powerful aspects that we can do for our kids. I'm glad you mentioned the three things that you talked about there, kindness, acceptance, and inclusion, because those are things I know that are quite prominent in your work. Can you give our listeners a little more of an insight into that? That's really the core of your uh, bullying prevention work, isn't it? The idea of kindness, acceptance, and inclusion. Very much so. So in fact, here's just a little bit of history. We started this date that's universally celebrated by schools throughout the nation, which happens during National Bullying Prevention Month in October, and we wanted to have a signature day. And so in 2011, we started Unity Day, and the tagline in 2011 was Unite Against Bullying. That happened for about a year or two. It was very successful, but we thought, we really want to reframe this to be saying, what do we want to unite for? Not so much what we want to unite against. And so we looked at the research and also just what kids were saying. And we landed on that we wanted to unite for what we call a trifecta of kindness, acceptance, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And those were very purposefully chosen in that so much of bullying is based on kids being inappropriate and unkind to each other. So again, kindness was an easy one. And I think kindness gets talked a lot of talked a lot in our society. But the other two don't so much, which are acceptance and inclusion. But so much about being bullied is because kids are, and again, what I said earlier about not fitting in or, you know, not belonging. Mm -hmm. And so we really want to talk about that ability to accept someone. And again, we would always tell kids, it's not about inviting somebody home for dinner or having them over to your house or anything, but it's really about being okay with the way somebody else is. And the third one, inclusion, is because bullying happens because kids are left out or they're purposefully excluded from events. And so the more that we can include each other, and inclusion doesn't have to be complicated. It can be something as simple as, you know, saying hi to somebody in the morning each morning and acknowledging them, holding the door for them. It's really about making sure that people feel that they're noticed and that they're valued. And so that trifecta is very important. And I would add, we even went a step further this year, and we've been talking about, you hear the term a lot, random acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. And we say that random acts of kindness are wonderful, and they have impact. But we really want kids, we want to challenge kids and encourage kids to really be thinking more about intentionality. So the intentional acts, acting with intention with acts of kindness, acceptance, and inclusion. And we even have a resource on our website that encourages that and outlines ways for kids to be more intentional because intentional has more of a long-term impact and it also changes behavior for everyone involved. Great. And what's the response from kids on these three things? Is this something that they sort of understand and welcome? Is this difficult for them? How do you feel when you're actually dealing with children? Because I know on your website, you have tremendous resources and they're broken down. You know, there's teens and there's younger children as well. 
So this whole vision and mission and idea of kindness, acceptance, and inclusion, what sort of response do you get from the kids themselves? One of the things that we noticed from very early on, and we've been working with focus groups with students since early 2000s, is that universally kids didn't like seeing bullying happen. And it bothered them, but also they had very little idea what they could do to help and be effective with helping. And so one of the things that we have looked at strongly throughout the years is how do we teach kids those skills? And and we call them advocacy skills or self-advocacy. So advocacy is what you can do to look out for someone else. And self-advocacy is what you can do to identify the help that you need and how you can get there. And so by teaching kids these, these attributes of what does it look like to be inclusive? What does it look like to be kind? What does it look like to being accepting of others? Those are the ways that we can prevent bullying without telling kids to just not bully. Because again, you can tell kids to stop bullying, but what does that mean? And again, when you can teach them those really valuable skills then that's where you start to see change happen. So kids have been incredibly accepting of it. (laughs) No (laughs) irony there. But it's just wonderful because it's giving them some tangible ideas about what they can actually do to have impact on others. And we have some incredibly amazing stories. And I'll share briefly a program that was based on David and that's been uh, implemented in other schools. It's not your son, David. Yeah, my son, David. And so it's about peer advocacy. And when David was going into middle school, again, as I talked about earlier, I was really nervous about what that experience was going to look like for him. But also evaluated that I knew that there were kids who cared about him. And I knew that there were kids who were leaders that would be willing to say something if they knew David was being bullied. And I would add there too that your peers, they know about bullying probably long before the adults do because so much about bullying is done very covertly. Mm-hmm. And so kids are trying to do things outside the purview of adults because they know if an adult sees them doing something, there's going to be consequences. The education, that piece has been done. And so you really want to tap into that power of students. And we just took those pieces of knowledge and said, well, why don't we create something where we Start with a few students and really educate them about, number one, what bullying is, number two, about David's disability, and number three, what they can do if they see him involved in a bullying situation. And we just simply called it peer advocacy at that time. So we hand-selected four kids. And I think what's interesting is one of the students selected for that, the teachers had identified him as somebody who bullies, Mm. but he really liked David. So I said, yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. We want to provide him with some advocacy skills because I think this will benefit him too. And so we did education for all four of those students. And they were so proud of their ability now to be able to help somebody else and really took so much pride in that. So they told other classmates about it. And other classmates came to the organizer of that program and asked how they could be involved. And so within six months time, there was four kids with disabilities and there was probably, I'd say about 30 of their peers who got involved. And really, I think the appeal of it was that, again, kids wanted to do something and we were giving them a tangible vehicle to get involved, to look out for somebody else, to make the difference in somebody else's life. And 
the program was incredibly successful at the school. And when I started, I was looking for a way for David to be protected. But what I didn't realize in the scope of all that, what it became about was this group of kids with disabilities being included. And early on in the school year, I had been to some sort of assembly and all the kids with disabilities were sitting in this little corner by themselves in their own little huddle. And I remember going back that spring and I saw the kids with disabilities sitting all over in an assembly in the bleachers with the kids who were involved with the program. And that's a huge, huge difference in, you know, in a few months time. Well, that's fantastic. And I think it's a great segue. Our podcast is all about protecting and preparing. And you're talking about giving these students tools that they can use. And our podcast is about giving parents and families and kids tools that they can use. And I think bullying, as you've talked about, happens in a certain way. But the more a child is prepared and has more resources on their own to understand this and to understand themselves, I think the better they are equipped to deal with that and not have that affect them in a, in a negative way. And, you know, we talk about something called choicefulness. And maybe, Rob, you can come in here and talk about our observation with this with regard to how it might be something that parents might want to be aware of with regard to bullying prevention. Yeah, well, we're, we're looking at a different way to think about choice. Uh, most people define it as decision-making. And in this day and age, with the complexity of society, it's sort of a ineffective definition. You know, like you made a good choice or a bad choice, you made a good decision or a bad decision. It's what most people think about, but we'd like to expand it into a different view of what choice is. So we've looked at it as a funnel having three layers between the first layer, which is is essentially the gatekeeper layer of awareness, and then the second layer being the abilities that come from awareness. And then the third layer down in the funnel is the abilities used and translated into forms of controlling your life and supporting lives around you. So by looking at it along those three layers, it gives us an opportunity to say what's going on in society and what programs in society are supporting new levels of awareness for students and for parents and for children. On that level, which is the first level, and your program would be a perfect example of that. Here's a program that supports the idea of change occurring in the world of bullying and therefore opens the door to awareness for students and parents. What does that do in terms of decision-making and choice? Well, then it allows students to alter their abilities on the second level down and make better decisions, have higher levels of intention about bullying, and therefore translate those first two levels of awareness and ability into ways of controlling their own power styles and aggressive styles, as well as supporting other people that have a different operation for power. They operate in different ways. And so it's a different way of thinking about choice as a funnel with three different layers or dimensions to it. And those are essentially learning layers. I mean, when you think about it, it's like if you start with the first layer, it's all about awareness. It's all about what's coming in and what am I processing and what am I learning? What's my awareness? And then do I take that idea, that information that I'm learning and translate that into 
some abilities and build my abilities and my intentions from that awareness. And then third, is that enough? No, you could even go one step further and say now each human being has a power or control styles that they develop over their lifetime. So does the awareness that I learned and the abilities that I'm developing translate into better power or control styles so that I can remove my aggressive power style and translate that into a cooperative or a supportive power style? So that's a long way around the idea of what is choicefulness, but it's related directly to a bullying program and different ways of change. Which is fantastic, which is what you guys are, are really involved with, as Rob has said. And, and we wanted to get into a little bit more about these power styles because we think that it may be something that a parent can help to transmit to their child that may help to change the perspective a little bit or add to the toolbox of what they have. And, and so, Rob, what are those power styles? There are sort of the obvious ones, but there's more than that. And I don't know if people really ever think of them in a defined way, but I think they'd be advantageous for us to bring out. Could you talk to us about that? Sure. What we've learned over time is like if you take a developmental spectrum and you go from being basically not too young, not only young, but without the executive function abilities in place yet, then you operate pretty much in a black and white world. And we know from Piaget and different uh, masters of learning theory that black and white hopefully translates into black, gray and white thinking over time. So there's a developmental range of power that accompanies a developmental range of thinking. So in our opinion, it's like there are six ways to be powerful and most entertainment They dominate in the realm of aggressive or physical power. So you see all the young kids paying attention to Marvel and all the different kinds of power that is pretty much represented by the hero who dominates physically. So that's one of what we would say are the six levels or six forms of power. So there's six power types. So the the first one is, can you be powerful physically? And that's highly represented in society and movies and film and and media. But it would make sense that the producers of media in our society would gravitate to that form of power because what they're about is gaining attention among children. And they would use that form of aggression and power and examples of power primarily, you know, in the film and media industry because that's where you get to do all the fighting, the aggression, the car crashes, the explosions, all of that is at that physical dimension and it sells and it's big time for business. So you see a dominating media, the physical form of power. The second form is emotional and that can combine with physical forms. So you have physical and combined with emotional dominance. And then the third form of power becomes social and the fourth form becomes cognitive And the fifth form becomes ethical or moral power. And then the sixth form is what we call transpersonal power, which is beyond the personal, which is inclusive of some higher idea, higher spiritual belief, higher form of wellness that goes beyond the physical. So we look at power as having six types of power and not just the physical. And then there is the use of it. 
And that's a different dimension. So think about it as a two-dimensional matrix. And on the second dimension of, okay, I see the six types of power, but how do you use it? And that goes along a continuum also, which is developmentally related all the way from the abusive forms of power and then into cooperative forms and nurturing forms of power. And they follow the same maturational development for wisdom and for people that move to higher levels of executive function where they can move through this range of starting. When they're young, they have no other assets except they can use their physicalness and maybe then they graduate into their cognition expands, they get smarter, they develop their executive functions, and they learn through experience how to use cognition, social power, and be more cooperative. And then finally, at the highest level, is not only cooperating, but taking the stand of nurturing others. And that moves all the way to that level of understanding in terms of how you use power. And so what's beautiful about what your programs are doing, Julie, is that you're teaching those forms of nurturing and cooperative power at an earlier age and creating a value system that needs to be created about which forms of power represent the best forms of power developmentally and for humanity. So that's sort of the power approach that we take with Live Above the Noise. Thank you for that that background and power styles. That's so fascinating. So of course, as I'm just sitting here processing in my head too, I think about not only the kids who witness the bullying, but also the kids who are being bullied and those who bully. So breaking them kind of into those three categories and how their own power styles would influence how they respond to the situation. So as we're talking about that awareness, that ability and control. And the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about awareness, Rob, was that one of the things that we did very early on is even looking at how we were labeling the roles of bullying. And so instead of calling the person who was subjected to the bullying, instead of calling them a victim, we called them a target. And the rationale behind that was We wanted them to know that they had power in the situation because so much about bullying is about taking away someone's power. Mm. And by taking and using the word target, we wanted them to know that they were being bullied because of something about them that was not being accepted by the other person. And so giving them back that kind of locus of control that way. And then for so long, what we've done too is saying, okay, what can you do in response to these situations? And so, again, that ties back to ability. And even say, for example, my son David with Down syndrome, who is nonverbal, we still wanted to enable him to have the ability to do something. So what we did with him was said, when you are in a situation in which you feel uncomfortable, we identified an adult that he could go to. And so everybody needs to feel that they can respond to a situation using their abilities. You know, for other kids, they may be able to respond back to a bullying situation with humor, or they may be able to deflect it by coming back with something, you know, just a tangible statement that shows that they're not bothered by it. But I think the same is true for the kids who see the bullying too, and to figure out which of their power styles best fit to help the other person. And I think, you know, obviously we want to avoid the physical one unless physical means helping somebody get away from a situation. But 
so often kids can can kind of really transcend and come up with creative ways to address bullying situations. But most often, it's just using that power of empathy combined with uh, being supportive of the other person. And so it's just a wonderful statement when you think about power styles and how kids can actually incorporate that and think through what their strengths are with the different power styles. Well, thank you so much for that, Julie. And I think that's a great place to leave this episode. And in the next episode, we're going to continue our conversation with Julie as we talk about what parents and families need to know about bullying. And more importantly, what they can do to help protect their children against bullying. In the meantime, we encourage you to check out the excellent resources at pacer.org forward slash bullying. And just as a reminder, you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and many other podcast providers. So until the next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.